Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and you're listening to Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Today, Chris and I sit down and talk about the start to our very difficult last four months, about the losses of function that started to turn the tide of how our family works, and about the trauma of repeated medical emergencies. I think the most shocking thing to me in getting ready for this conversation was just how much I actually forgot about Chris's October health crisis. And I guess the reason I forgot so many things was because the trauma of his December ICU stay and the challenges since then have replaced things that happened in October. And I don't know, maybe we can only hold so much trauma in our minds and our bodies at once. Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I do know there's a real reason of concern when people start to operate under such a constant high level of stress that it becomes sort of the norm for them. Um, That's where we've been for the last several months. Uh, And I'm telling you, it's not pretty. (laughs) Not for an 11-year-old boy, an 8-year-old girl, a 39-year-old mom, or a 41-year-old dad. Uh, We're doing our best. We have been doing our best. But what that has meant is that for the last months, our best has largely been just surviving. Um, And as a mom who wants to give her kids joy-filled days and happy memories, accepting that I can't do that right now is really hard. I remember being concerned about some behavior stuff that was happening for one of our kids and asking their therapist about it and their therapist saying, it's unrealistic for me to think that uh, there might be a positive shift in behavior uh, right now. This was sort of in the thick of things in October, November, December. Um, And that made a lot of sense when she said it, but it's still a hard thing to accept that when you see your child struggling with the weight of all the hard things in their lives that you can't just fix it. Um, But that is a reality. Uh, So we're all doing our best to give ourselves and each other grace and compassion and to remember that the only way out of the dark parts of life is through them. So here's a conversation where you will hear me admit that I was annoyed when Chris needed to go to the ER in October Uh, where we acknowledge that we were blindsided by the severity of what was going on with him once we got to the ER, and where I fail to remember how sick Chris felt on the day he needed to be readmitted to the hospital. Um, As always, this is a real-time look at our family, uh, a young family, trying to muddle through the pain and loss of a terminal illness um, at a point in which the illness really refuses to stay in the backseat where we had tried so hard to keep it. Uh, The reality is that starting in October, Chris's illness moved to the driver's seat, and it has left us all just hanging on for dear life. So this, again, is our story. I'll pause to say thanks to every single person who is supporting this podcast. Last week's episode was the most ever downloaded on day one of an episode going live. And I'm just so grateful to everyone who is listening and sharing this show with others. If you would like to show your support, remember that the two best ways you can do that are to listen and to share this podcast with other people, either by sharing on social media or sending it to your friends. 
Um, another great way to show your support is to follow or subscribe to Sorry I'm Sad wherever you get your podcast, so that all the new episodes will be automatically downloaded and added to your listening queue. And one more way to show your support is to join my Patreon. Um, I have realized that some people might not know what Patreon is. Uh, so a quick descriptor there is that it's a website that allows you to show your support for your favorite creators by subscribing to their work. So you can join my Patreon by going to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow, that's K-E-L-S-I-E-S-N-O-W, and signing up for as little as $5 a month. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me say that Sorry I'm Sad is truly a labor of love for me, from finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself. A great deal of time, energy, and thought go into each ad-free episode. So if you value the show and you want to support it, remember you can visit patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. Your contribution will help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and give you access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Okay. We're still here. <laughs> yeah, we're still here, holding on by threads. Less so than two months ago. Less so than two months ago, yep. We're back. We are recording. I think we feel, I don't know, do you feel ready to unpack all these things? Because I'm strapped to this chair. That's why you're what? Strapped to this chair. Strapped in <laughs> That's not true. Disclaimer. Chris is not being forced to do this. <laughs> not totally. What does that mean? Oh, this isn't exactly optional. <laughs> of course it's optional. It's like what Gerald says, practice is optional. You're right. <laughs> you better be there when your wife says the podcast. You don't have to do it. You still have to do it. Okay. Fair enough. Anyway, we're here, and I I think I did an update in late November where I said that soon we would talk about our hard fall and uh, we'd be ready to sort of rehash that. And of course I had no idea what was coming for us in December. Um, And as I went back through to get ready for this, and I said to you, I think I replaced the October trauma with the December one because the December one was bigger and scarier. And I think in my mind, I thought maybe October must not have actually been that bad. October was awful. October was awful. And I think because December was so, so scary and so much more awful than anything we had dealt with, I sort of put October in a different place in my mind. And some of it, I even, you were saying things to me about, well, that happened and that happened. And I I had kind of forgotten because December is still so fresh in my mind. And then everything we've been dealing with since December, which is just pretty much just a big change in how we live. That's changed a lot um, since December. And we'll we'll get to all that. So I I think our plan is to just sort of do this chronologically and start, start in October um, in this episode. And then, and then in the next episode, uh, hit on December and all, all that fun stuff and sort of where we are now. Um, but I wanted to go back to, to sort of start back at the summertime because, uh, I remember in the summer thinking that losses were coming for us 
I remember in September saying to a friend that I felt like I was sort of suiting up, like putting on my armor and getting ready to have to deal with a real onslaught of loss to this disease. And I think what we understood in the summer was that your shoulder wasn't great and it seemed like it was getting worse pretty quickly. And by that, my quote-unquote good shoulder. Right, your left shoulder, because the disease for Chris started in his right hand, um, which has been useless now for three and a half years. Um, But his right shoulder remains pretty strong. I think that's pretty much it. I think you're right, your bicep, your right tricep, gone. But you can drive a lot of movement Mm -hmm. through your shoulder, which is what you've learned. And your right shoulder has been pretty good. Like you can still raise your hand above your head, which when you were diagnosed, the doctor who diagnosed you said that he what he thought you would see next was that you wouldn't be able to lift your right hand above your head. So strange and so fortunate. So strange and so fortunate, yeah, that, that it stopped in that way. So light. now, in July, the left started to show signs. Yeah, the left shoulder. Um, I wondered, I don't know how many footballs you threw to um, Cohen and our nephew into the lake this summer, but I wondered if you felt it at all then. Well, I'm sorry, just guilty doing my hair. Right. And that told me that there was an issue that was not going to get better, but worse. Right. And so through those falls, there was no issue, but I knew. When I threw the last one on the summer, the next summer, I went on. I remember coming home, and I think there was there was one time you played catch with Cohen where it felt hard. So Cohen, since he was right, three years old, has pitched out front to me. Yeah. And we still did this, still did this into this summer. You know, he's got two weeks mm-hmm. And he got back to the link, and he threw a pitch. I couldn't react. I couldn't take that glove for a set position to the side mm-hmm. or up top. Mm-hmm. And I was scared because he's so scared. Yeah, he's getting bigger so he can throw harder. And I was sad because I thought this is... This is almost this is almost done. This is almost done. Yeah, that was a hard day. And then I feel like there was a day a couple times after that where it was better. Mm-hmm. But it was probably after your October hospital stay when but before your December one, when we had um a conversation with I think Cohen specifically, I think we've talked to Willa about it separately, or we've talked to both of them at different times, but for whatever reason, this time we were just talking to Cohen and we were talking about your shoulder and explaining, maybe it was both of them. I don't remember. Anyway, we were just explaining what was going on with your shoulder and the things that were getting more difficult for you at that point, like pulling up your pants was getting more difficult because these are all things you need your shoulder for. Um, your pinching isn't great on your left hand, on your good hand. So like buttoning your pants was, was difficult, uh, at that point too. And he was sad, but 
you know, he's always very kind of stoic, I think, around you in particular. Doesn't want you to know maybe if he's feeling sad. But we went, he and I were going somewhere right afterward. And I just kind of said, this is really sad about dad's arm, just to see if he had more to kind of get out. And he said, yeah, but dad will still be able to play baseball with me, right? Um, and I don't think I had realized like I had earlier in the year, but I ha- we hadn't had that part of the conversation, you know, at that point. And I just, I said, no, buddy, I, I don't think dad will be able to play baseball with you again. And, and he and I had a good cry. And I think those are things that everybody's grieving in real time. I think that will probably hit it. That really won't hit until spring. Because we saw hockey up when Holly and I bought it in an elite. And those are gone. Yeah. He likes to play, be silly, uh, to teach, but really just to play. Uh, Colin is a kid who you play with him. Don't start 10 times and say, Dad, I love you. Yeah, that's how he says thank you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so you lose that, and you lose a huge piece on the day-to-day relationship. Mm-hmm. You lose the good. You lose the easy. Yeah. And then you're just like, this dad just sits there and says, go do this, go do that. Because he has no other experiences. Yeah, and I think that's still something you're sort of trying to figure out is how do you change, shift the way that you're connecting and what are the new ways that you can connect? How do you connect? How do you connect? When the number one way that you connected with both kids was was by play and phys- physical play. And you cannot, I cannot silent them. Yeah. I can't disarm with the uh, non-verbal, mm-hmm. I could use means that tell them that's happy, that's excited. It's, it's our dad's straight-faced. He can't play. It's just that. Yeah. And I'm always telling you, like, just don't, you don't have to, let me be the one who tells them what to do and all of that because I don't want you to have to. Have that be the... It's easier said than done. It is, but I just always... I don't want you to have to have that be the primary way that you're interacting with them. Um, Because, you know, I can do all these other things. Like, I drive them to their sports and I get them ready and I I have all these other little ways in a day that, that we can connect outside of that. So I'm always trying to tell you, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. But that's not fair. You still want to parent, obviously. I'm just trying to tell you you don't have to be the... Heavy. I can be the heavy. You mentioned Taylor Kids Hockey. It said at least it said four years close to it since I tied Colin Skates. Mm. And he'll say time instead. You still tie them the best. And you always tap to the side when you're done to say you're done. Tap the side of his skates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't recall that. No. He does. He remembers everything, for better or for worse. He remembers everything. 
so another thing that, that happened in the fall was that I went to Napa with a friend in September and I remember I was, you know, I was kind of hesitant about going is an expensive time of year to go there. And it's a busy time of year for the kids stuff. And, and I remember you saying to me that I needed to do this because we didn't know how many more trips I'd be able to take where I could leave you. And it felt when you said it, like one of those things that we have to say, but that really can't be true. And sure enough, <laughs> that will be, you know, I'm sure there'll be another trip, but right now it's, it's, uh, it's hard to envision a day where you don't have me there for the day-to-day things. Right. So, um, October started and it was lovely and actually felt a lot like things were okay. September was crazy and now October's going to, we're going to settle into everything and it's going to, we had a nice trip to Banff, stayed at the Springs for my birthday and that was really nice. And then, uh, kids were already start starting hockey. Cone had an early hockey tournament over Canadian Thanksgiving weekend. Willa was going to have, uh, Willa had a slumber party for her birthday, which is in late September, but, uh, we're having a little bit later. It was on a Friday night, I think. And I had had little girls over for Willa's birthday the night before, and someone had been awake at three in the morning. So I'd been awake at three in the morning and it had not been a good night of sleep for me. And I was exhausted and Cohen had, I had gotten up really early to take Cohen to hockey that Friday morning. I think it was a Friday. And so I was really tired. Um, but we'd had a really great day. Cohen had played two games that day. And in the second game, uh, he got player of the game. And in the tournament for player of the game, they got these white cowboy hats. And so he was so excited and we, it was just, it's been, it was so fun to watch him. And, you know, he's with this new team and he's in the, he's a first year, only three first years on the team. And for him to get player of the game, he was so proud of himself and we were so proud of him. And we took this great family picture in the lobby at the hockey rink with Cohen with his suit on and his white cowboy hat. And you actually, I sent you the, you went to work after that. You were driving still. You went to work from there and I took the kids to a team dinner um, for Cohen's team. And I sent you the pictures of us and you actually wrote to me, what a wonderful day. And got home that night and I remember I fell asleep on the couch at like nine o'clock. I was mm-hmm. exhausted. And I think around 10, you woke me up or I woke up because you had, you had, I'm trying to even remember what exactly happened. Literally bad cough for days. Yeah, you had a cold. That sounded like you're revving. Sounded a like what? Oh, revving a motorcycle. And I couldn't. Seriously, I could not control it. And I was scared that it was going to cause what it caused. And one of those revolution in front of Southern Christian. So you have reflux. Your cough caused reflux, basically. And usually I feel stuff come up and some in my throat, some in the lung. This instantly, instantly felt like my growing 
was flooded. Like your airway was flooded. You don't breathe at all. Mm-hmm. For a good um, 20 seconds. And the experience of this has taught me to breathe when I can through these, through my nose. Breathe through your nose. It took a long time to get to that stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, my instantly, when I could breathe, it was not good at all. When you could breathe, it wasn't good at all. Yeah, I don't know. Did I wake up? Did you wake me up or did I wake up just because of the sound you were making? I'm sure it was that. Um, and I remember... And my oxygen has polluted instantly. They were bad. Yeah, but I don't remember them being as bad as they've been. Like, I remember right... So, this is a moment of real transparency. And I think it's important to um, to talk about this. Like, about the... When, the way that we can, that we get conditioned to medical emergencies when we are sort of, when they happen over and over to us. Um, because in my mind, you right. weren't, you weren't that bad. And in my mind, this is like the worst. the worst ever. And I remember, and in just true and real honesty, and, and this makes me feel awful to say out loud, but I, I remember waking up and just being annoyed because I knew He's, if you go to the hospital, I'm going to get an, I'm not going to sleep all night long. And I have Cohen has hockey really early in the morning and I'm going to be miserable for, this is going to set me up to be miserable for many days because I'm not going to sleep at all. And, and usually you're the one who nurses a caution. Saying go to the hospital. In this case, you said. I said, go, why, what do you, like, what do we think they're going to do for us at the hospital? I can get an antibiotic and we could take an antibiotic if you think you're going to have a pneumonia, which we had done. Like a little bit before that, you had had a small aspiration and we got a prescription. We didn't go to the hospital. You had a little bit of a fever the next day. And then that was when we decided to do the antibiotic. Mike, for this time, and so you would have it again mm-hmm. and suffocate. And you'd suffocate. You would basically just drown in your own like secretions and reflux. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the past, when we've had these things happen, because we've been through it now, this was almost a year that we'd been dealing with these reflux aspiration things. You go into the hospital, get put on a little bit of oxygen, have chest x-ray, get an antibiotic, and go home. And so in my mind, that's what we were dealing with again. And I just thought, oh, here we go again. Why does this always have to happen at night? <laughs> and I can't, like, why couldn't this happen at 10 in the morning instead of 10 at night? So it would be a lot easier. But the kids were in bed. And you, you were really scared and you couldn't talk. Um, and you typed out a message on your phone and you wrote, um, barely breathe in my lung. It's burning. A spasm caused it. This is like last time, but worse lung hurts. Um, I didn't think I was going to be okay. And then we were talking about, well, what will they do? You wanted to know to me, ask me, what will they do at the hospital? Right. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what they can do aside from like, because you had all this stuff you want, you want help, like getting this out of your lungs. And I said, I don't know. And you said, you wrote very scared of another, just like it soon. I'm scared. I'll gag. And that I won't be able to breathe. Um, and, and that if I spasm overnight, I'll suffocate. Um, and so then I was like, okay, <laughs> we're going to go to the hospital. 
So I sent a message to some friends who I knew were all celebrating huh. a 40th birthday. These are friends. And, um, and I said, is anybody in position? <laughs> so I figured they were all, all not in position to drive. But I said, is anybody in position to come sit with the kids? I need to take Chris to the ER. And our friend Jarvis wrote back immediately and said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. <clears throat> so he came and I think we left right around as he was getting here. And I, you needed help getting to the car. And the moment that I really realized this was a different situation, anytime somebody has anything in their lungs or throat that's inhibiting their breathing, like it's scary and you feel like you're going to suffocate. That's, that was not a new feeling for you, that panic that you were going to suffocate. But when we got to the car, I was, you needed help getting in the car. You were so scared of like moving because you thought anything could trigger another. Just shifting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you looked at me and you said, I don't want to die. And I, at that point, realized this was different. So I said, I think I said to you, no one's dying tonight. We're going to get you to the hospital and you're going to feel better. So we got to the hospital and you needed a wheelchair. Um, you couldn't walk. So I get you in a wheelchair. I get you in. I think they got us back pretty quickly. And I'm trying to remember. I, I think that was the time. Yeah, that was the time when they were asking me what happened. And I just lost it. And I could barely talk. And I was crying. They took you immediately. And they were asking me questions. So I was standing in the triage by myself. And this lovely nurse like just brought me a box of tissues those stupid little hospital tissues that are like half a tissue. Why can't hospitals buy good tissues? I brought my own at that point. From then on, I bring my own tissues to the hospital. We bring a lot of stuff to the hospital. We bring a lot of stuff to the hospital. And so they brought you back, um, and your stats were really bad. And that was like, I had not really ever felt like we were in real trouble until that point. Like, at, at any other previous hospital visit because it was it was like that typical like flurry that you would like see on a medical show right like ER Grey's Anatomy or whatever like people doing everybody's adding a different like IV or line or whatever to you and they're asking me questions and and they put you on this high flow oxygen one seduction at max yeah it's called optiflow and um I don't think it was. I said, can you help him get this stuff out of his chest? And I remember the guy saying, like, first he was kind of like, no, there's not really anything we can do about that. And I, I, I just remember being like, that can't be right. Like, how, how can you not have something that can suck some of this out of his lungs and out of his, and out of his throat right now? Because you were so gurgly sounding. Um, and your, your sats were not, like, they started you probably on wall oxygen and then they put you on the max amount of liters there, and you, your sats weren't going up high enough, which is why they then, I don't know, your typical oxygen saturation f for me right now is probably like 96, 97. And you were probably, when we got there, in the you were probably in the 80s when we got there. I think so. Let's see. That was the next time. The next time you were in the 70s. I was still older than that. Yeah. You may have been by the time we got in there. I'm sorry, it was difficult. It was difficult you had trying to breathe. Yeah. 
So anyway, he kind of said, no, they couldn't do anything about it. And then he said that they could do something, but to clear you out, which now I think I understand is like a bronchus bronchoscope or whatever, that the same thing, they, they just say that they bronched someone, like it's a verb, which I learned in ICU, but um, where they, that's when they like intubate you and they clear out your lungs as they're like, because they're in there intubating you. And, and as ALS patients, we are like very scared of intubation, right? Very scared of a ventilator. Yeah, anybody is. But, but for a person with ALS, with a, a disease that progresses into your lungs and into your breathing muscles, the notion of getting put on a ventilator, it feels more so that you have, feels like you have lesser odds of coming off that ventilator than if oh. you had just been a regular person. Please said that they were into it. Yes. I was like, no, no. So, if you don't want that, you just die. No, no, no. Not that. Not to see I know. That was, that was hard, too. Yeah, they said, basically, they're asking, do you want us to take these life-saving measures? And so do if we need to intubate you, do you want us to do that? And you said, no, no, no. And I looked at you, and I was like, no, no. To be clear, you want to stay alive. And you said, yes, but I don't want to be intubated. You know, like last resort, which I don't think they do it if it is, isn't in last resort. And it was at that point that I, that the, he, the, I think that ER doctor looked at me and said, you know, if we intubate Chris, there's a chance he's not going to come off the ventilator. And so is there anyone you want to come and see him before we do that? Sounds really, really? This is that serious? Yeah. That's exactly what it felt like. And I, I was like, I think you're misunderstanding (laughs) the situation. He's fine. He's fine. You were not fine. On that night, I am to lean forward on a tabletop because it's easier to breathe. Lean forward than sit up or incline. And so it's eight hours. That's how I slept. That's how I sat. That's how I breathe. You, we got there, like I said, at like 10. 1030 at night and you sat in a hard plastic chair for like sitting straight up, not, not breathing with that optiflow on, or sorry, not, um, not sleeping with that optiflow on. And then I left, uh, to go try to figure out, like talk to the kids at around five in the morning. And when I came back, one of the nurses had given you that table to like lean on. And that was the first time you slept and I distinctly remember I took a picture of you sleeping like that and I sent it to your sister. And she wrote me back and said, This is what dad looked like at the end. Because that's how your dad was sleeping. Like leaned over. Yeah. Leaned over on the counter at the at the lake and and that was the only way he could sleep. And and I remember that even before I had sent her the message, I I remembered that same thing. And and so all of a sudden it just, it felt like we had just lost our grip on what we thought was our reality. And all of a sudden we were in this place where, and I remember sending your sister a message and saying, I'm not, I'm not ready for any of this. Like, I didn't think we were here. And just sitting in that bed, I sat in the hospital bed and just sobbed while you just laid there sleeping with your, like leaning over on that table. And 
on that high flow oxygen, I think for at least 12 hours, you were on that hundred percent. That's the most they can give you without you being on a ventilator. And then they moved you up to pulmonary. And at that, there was conversation then about you going into that ICU um, and whether you should be in the ICU or not. And they decided that you were sort of stable enough on that optiflow that they would send you to pulmonary. And once you got up there, they started lowering your oxygen. And, and I felt like as I went back through and read a bunch of things that, uh, you did get better pretty quickly. It felt like. I did. Was I not lying down at all? No, you didn't sleep lying down for how Three weeks. Three weeks you slept in a chair. Because when you went to lie down, you couldn't breathe. Not sure. Um, and so that was scary because generally speaking, the first sign for an ALS patient that their breathing muscles are deteriorating is that breathing is harder when they're lying down. I didn't want to start concerned with that because I don't causes i was concerned about that because it was so long that it was taking you it was so long that it was taking you to feel comfortable lying down again at the first like few days i it made sense to me but after that it made me feel pretty nervous and then the other issue that we were really dealing with at that point was still dealing with this reflux and we're having all this reflux we can't seem to figure out the problem i remember asking the your on one of your als doctors is this a common problem for ALS patients, like all this reflux. And he said, no, I've never seen somebody with this like ever since I've been working with ALS patients. And so, you know, sort of my hypothesis became that, you know, esophageal sphincter that separates your esophagus from your stomach is a muscle and that it had worn out and it had atrophied and basically your stomach isn't closing off. So at any given moment, stuff is coming. Then you also have a problem with dysmotility, meaning your stomach isn't moving food through mm-hmm. it. So, so food is sitting there There's a, and then you have to eat so much. So you're eating so much food, 4,000 calories a day of liquid and your stomach doesn't digest fast enough and your esophagus doesn't close off the way it should from your stomach. And this is our fifth such pneumonia. Yeah. Cartilage in less than one year. Yeah, and you were still having a lot of stuff in your throat, and you were feeling full, and you were feeling like you could taste like taste food coming back up. So you were still having all this reflux, and we we're trying to figure out what that meant. Should you have a surgery where basically they, it's called a fundiplication, where they, I think, wrap some of your intestine around the your esophagus where it meets your stomach so that it tightens that, and, and then maybe things don't... Um, come up as much. And then the other conversation was, should we have, so Chris for two years at that point, had had a, a, a G tube, meaning a tube going into his stomach, a gastric tube. And should we have a J tube, which is when you still go in through the same hole in his stomach and through his stomach, but then a smaller tube is routed through there all the way into your jejunum, which is in your small intestine. So we would be bypassing his stomach entirely. And we didn't know about that because you have to eat really slowly if you have a J-tube. And we're talking like based on the number of calories you needed, we thought you'd be eating 
like 18 hours a day. So those were the conversations we were having while you were in hospital. And then at this, this time you were at Foothills and I had no help. Like this is one of those times where you, when you don't have family, it's a struggle because we had tons of people willing to help us. That's not what it is, but it's, you don't have a home base for your kids. You know, someone, when you were in the hospital in December, my mom or your sister were here and they could come home after their activities and be here. But if I needed to be at the hospital in October with you until eight or nine o'clock, where were the kids going to be? It's so important that you are, not just for my comfort, but until I voice not great and your knowledge of my conditions of it, you gotta eat. Yeah. And really you're trying that as much as the doctors. Right. Yeah. I mean it's um it's reminding me of the other day when we were having a conversation and, and Chris told me that I'm too intense and I'm I'm guessing that most people listening can understand how that landed for me. <laughs> Not good. That was right thing to say. <laughs> it was narrator. It was not the right thing to say. <laughs> anyway, but sure. And I, I, I'm sure he meant it in the nicest way possible. Ha ha. But I think I, I am. And I think I have to be in those situations. And I think bringing, you know, a very intense amount of care and knowledge to your disease makes a huge amount of difference in a hospital setting. It's such a disease that really, you don't treat, just sort of manage the moment. Right, right. And and then, you know, on even even in that situation, I was saying, I remember in hospital, that, that time I was saying, I think we should try a cough assist, which is this machine that a lot of, pe- lot of ALS patients and people with lung diseases use when you have weakened lungs, breathing muscles, weakened diaphragm. Which I don't. No. But when you can't cough, and Chris had, I always say, like, for Chris, the trouble with these, the secretions in his, for him, I always call it like this no man's land, right? We all have this spot in our throat where we get something and maybe we can swallow extra hard to get rid of it. Um, it's, but it's a hard place to cough stuff up from. And, that's a struggle for you. Things get stuck in that space. And so I wanted to try the cough assist to see if we could pull that stuff out or even up a little bit more. So then you could cough it out because we were really struggling at that point. You had been, you had tested positive for just like a regular cold in the hospital. And we were really struggling with these secretions in your throat. And they just felt like they were building and building. Your breathing was like gurgly and crackly. And it wasn't necessarily in your lungs at that point. It was in your throat. And the fear is that it would go into your lungs um, eventually. So, and then become pneumonia. So, but even in that situation, I was trying to advocate for you, but nobody at Foothills could find a cough assist. It was. Yes, I had pneumonia. Yeah, you had something because you did have you on antibiotics, um, but they weren't sure if it was a pneumonia or a pneumonitis, which is doesn't need to be treated with antibiotics, right? Pneumonitis is just like inflammation, irritation in your lungs and a pneumonia is an infection. And it's hard to know which is which because you had not had a fever at all at any point. They thought maybe you didn't actually have an, a, a pneumonia. So I think you had like five days of antibiotics at Foothills or something like that. And, and we got out of the hospital and you had 
when you got out of the hospital, you needed a wheelchair to get to the car still. Yes. I'm just shocked that I, you know, I was completely exhausted. Yeah. Start to, start to finish. And when you put oxygen, it was only in Hades. Yeah. Like, I was not healthy enough for discharge. Right. And we pushed for discharge, too. You wanted to get home. You wanted to, to get out of the hospital. But, yeah, you were in the your, – your SATs, again, which should be in the high 90s for a healthy person, were in the high – mid to high 80s. So we kind of left the hospital thinking we were going to have further conversations about getting you this surgery because you really did not want to eat, to eat, 10 hours a day. To eat for 18 hours a day, to be hooked up to a pump that would feed you a bag of food. For 18 hours a day. And the doctors agreed with that. Yep. The doctors said, yeah, that's a quality of life thing. Chris works. Chris is active. Mm-hmm. do this. Yeah, definitely. I don't think I can make too big how much everybody was struggling during that time at home and how we were all just kind of like holding on. Um, these things are so hard. And I did feel I had a lot more support when you were in the hospital in December. And, and though I was still exhausted and stretched really thin... I think everybody's mental health in December for the kids, the kids and my mental health in December were, it was better because we had support at home in the house. Um, October was really, really hard because the kids were going different directions with different people all day long. They were coming home. They were exhausted. They needed downtime to connect. I was exhausted. Um, and sort of the cherry on top of that Sunday was that they were doing vaccinations at school. And Cohen got vaccinated at school um, and he had told me he didn't want to do it because he wanted me to be there. And I said, like, buddy, this is a lot easier for everybody if you can just do it at school. I'm in the hospital with you and I get a phone call from the school saying that Cohen had fainted (laughs) when he was getting his vaccination and fallen off his chair, probably hit his head and probably needed to go to the hospital. (laughs) And I was like, what? He's never, ever had anything like that before through any of his vaccinations. And so I talked to him, and he didn't want me to come. And he said, I'm fine. I don't I don't want you to come. And I got off the phone, and I said, I can't. I can't not go. So I went, and, and he came out to the car, and I went and got him a soda and some candy. And he sat with me, and... He was very sad and sort of, I think Cohen is that typical oldest child where he's like the protector and he wants to look out. He's trying to look out for me. He's trying to look out for you. He's trying to look out for Willa, you know, and that worries me because I don't want him to do those things to his detriment um, for looking out for himself. And so he got in the car and he, you know, he cried and I cried and it was a lot. And he kind of talked about the week and just everything. And I said, why didn't you want me to come? And he said, well, I didn't want you to leave dad. And I said, buddy, like, you are just as important as daddy. Like, you being okay and you being healthy is just as important as daddy being okay and daddy being healthy. Um, That was a hard one. And then um, you got out of the hospital. That's home for five days. Home for five days and and Uh, not getting better. It's like summer. It was also outside. So she don't walk each day. Mm. That's not too long. No, we couldn't even go halfway around the block. 
To her say least. It was a struggle, yeah. You weren't getting better. Your stats weren't getting better. Though you didn't sound better. I was exhausted. I couldn't catch her breath. Yeah. No, nothing was getting better, but we thought maybe this is just the way it was going to be. And then we had an appointment, I think the week, the next week, at the ALS clinic, just a regular appointment. And of course, uh, Willa woke up that morning with a fever. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do about that. Can't take her with us to the appointment. She's sick. And I can't miss the appointment because you weren't feeling good and we needed to talk to the doctors. And so I left Willa, eight years old, on the couch with her computer and our neighbor works from home and gave him our front door code and said, please, just go check on Willa once an hour. No, I wasn't just not feeling well. I want to try to read to accept that I experienced. Really? That morning? Okay. I don't remember that being, I don't remember it being a lot worse that morning. I remember it just being like steadily bad. That morning was a lot worse. That's the thought that the disease was in my lungs. Yeah, no, I know that part of it, but I didn't, but I've, my stats were 75. I could talk the stairs. Your stats were 75. That I took four months cellular and couldn't get them in until I instantly expelled that air. Right, because you were you had stuff in your throat. I drove in the dark since it's that time of the year down to South Health. And I was certain they're going to say, Alice is in Alice. Yeah, you took three breaks on the walk from the car to the clinic. And we got in and we kind of talked to them and did our thing. And then they did your SATs. And your SATs were like in the 80s. They said, You're not leaving. And then your, yeah, your doctor came in and said, I. I can't, he's like, I can't let you leave. And I also can't move you to a different hospital because we were at South Health is like a 35 minute drive from our house and Foothills is a three minute drive. And he was like, we can't let you leave because I can't actually put you on enough oxygen to transport. Like you need so much oxygen. I can't transport you on this high amount of oxygen because you weren't responding to the oxygen they were giving you. So they kept giving you more, 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 more. And so I think you were on 10 liters. And so he said, you know, you're going to, you need to get a chest x-ray. You're going to be admitted. And meanwhile, I thought I was going to leave Willa on the couch for three hours and be back. And so now we're trying to figure your stuff out. I'm trying to find someone to come over to our house, pick Willa up and take her for the day when she's sick. And, and I remember we were going down, for the chest x-ray at South Health. And I, that for me was when I thought, they're not going to find anything in his lungs because we wanted them to find something. We wanted there to be an ammonia because then there's a reason that you're struggling to breathe. And um, I thought they're not going to find anything in his lungs. And now this is this is breathing support territory. Like we're going to end up on a BiPAP and this is a very bad slippery slope to be on. And then they didn't want, wanted you to get a, was that when they wanted you to get the, the CT scan and you couldn't, couldn't lie down. you couldn't lie down and you were panicked. I remember. Physically, I could lie down. Mm-hmm. 
and just a circle on reflux. Yeah, yeah. And we got upstairs, I think, from that, and your doctor was sitting there. He he was looking at your chest X-ray on the computer, and I st- you they wheeled you into your room, and I stopped and I to talk to him, and and he said that your chest X-ray showed you had like not a big pneumonia, but a pneumonia. And his feeling was that it was in a place in your lungs. I'm going to get this wrong medically, but I believe he called it a shunt, which is basically like a spot in your lungs where we all have these spots in our lungs where that's where the blood likes to go to get oxygenated. And so even though a lot of your lungs were healthy and this was a pretty small, unremarkable uh, pneumonia, I think they called it, that the blood just kept going to that one spot in your lungs to try to get oxygen and thinking it was oxygenated and then leaving to go through your body and it wasn't oxygenated enough. And so you that's why your stats were so low. And he was saying he could have given you 50 liters of oxygen, he could have given you five and it wouldn't have made a difference because of where this pneumonia was. And at that point, it was like, okay, that's good. This means there's a reason for this instead of the disease. I don't, I still don't think I was completely convinced that the disease wasn't in your lungs at all. I thought we wouldn't know that for sure until we got home, you got better and all of that. At that time though, he told you about the blood gas test. Right. That's right. That's what he assured you. Yeah. So the bl- a blood gas test measures the amount of, of um, carbon dioxide in your blood. Right. And Basically, if your lungs, if your breathing muscles are weakened, you don't expel, you don't, expel, you don't take in enough oxygen and you don't expel enough um, carbon dioxide. So you, so your blood gas is, especially if you're on oxygen, you're getting this oxygen put into your body. And then if you can't get rid of it by exhaling enough, then your blood gas would be too high and your blood gas was completely normal. And I had been really scared too, because they had given you that, started giving you that blood gas test in the clinic and they, by, they put these sticky things on your forehead and it takes, that test takes a while. The other one they do, they take blood right from an artery, but, um, but this one, they, they did it on your head and they had, and she was like, oh, it's going to keep going. This is the normal range, but this is, it's going to keep going up and up and up. Then, uh... then it will come back down. Well, it went up and up and up, well past normal. And I was just sitting there watching it, waiting for it to come back down. And then they were like, oh, you have to go get your chest x-ray now. So I had no idea because it had stopped up high in this number that was out of range of normal. So, yeah, we got into the room. And then I remember um, Dr. Salverson um, saying to me that he thought you needed to get the J the J, J tube. So he thought you needed to eat through your intestine. And that was the first, because it's a non-invasive option. It goes right into your current G, like the the hole in your stomach that's already there versus this fun duplication surgery. It's a full on, put you under surgery. And he said to me, this is going to kill him if you don't do something about it. And I said, okay, (laughs) I think you might need to tell him that. And then he said, you know, eating for 18 hours a day is a better option than having aspiration, reflux, reflux, and all these pneumonias. And he was very 
sort of blunt, which I appreciated in saying that if we didn't figure this out, this would be the thing that you die from. I mean, aspiration pneumonia is the second leading cause of death for ALS patients. And we knew that already, but as far as how we were going to solve this reflux problem, you know, and he very pushed up, pushed us hard into the direction of get the J tube. And if that doesn't work, then do the other thing, but this is less invasive and we have to do something as quickly as we can. Um, so once we sort of knew that the blood gas was normal, that whatever was going on with your lungs was acute and not chronic from the disease, then we had to start thinking about how are we going to solve this. So then on a Wednesday, we talked a lot of this on the Thursday, on Friday, just to do nothing on reflux. Mm-hmm. I'm so scared to say, oh no, this again. I need to eat still. Mm-hmm. And they could not even discuss the two placement until Monday. Yeah. So it felt like we needed to hurry up and get this done. And, and you know, it just doesn't work that way. You have to wait for things. And, and it was happening fast, but it didn't feel fast enough. <laughs> and no one has these things. Not a lot of people, especially not a lot of adults, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to sort out what was the best type of tube and how to, it was, it was a lot of, a lot of conversations, but I think we sorted it all out. And I think you started to feel a lot better at South health. Um, we did, we did get a cough assist and we tried the cough assist there. The first time? Well, the amount of stuff that it pulled out and that you were able to cough up afterward, it was shocking that you had been breathing as well as you had been. And we started to feel like at least we had a plan going forward to how to deal with the reflux stuff. Um, but man, that was a rough, that was a rough time because Cohen's playing hockey at a rink 25 minutes Northeast of us. And the hospital's 35 minutes Southeast and Willa's around here playing hockey and doing her own thing. And again, I had no, one else here but me, and you want me at the hospital as much as possible. And I think that was for me the hardest part was I just feel I just felt like I'd come home and the kids were struggling so much, and I was struggling so much. And then you wanted me there, and I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't be enough for anybody. Um, and I was doing a bad job at all of it. You weren't. And everything for everyone. Yeah, it was hard. I didn't feel like a good mom, and these things are really hard. You're not too hard to tell in these situations. It might be the case. I think every situations are that somehow the kids are great, not, not, not taught that you'll have unlimited energy and patience and tolerance. And so realistic, it's too hard. It is too hard. It's it's also when you're in it, you know, it doesn't, when you're in it, it's, it just, it feels like you're failing people. And it's a really hard thing. I'm sure that everybody who, I'm sure pretty much every mom can relate to that feeling. And then when you're dealing with something like your illness, it's just that much more heightened. Like I've always struggled with mom guilt 
probably to, you know, you would say a degree that is not, I don't know, accurate for what it should be, but that's, that's definitely something I've always struggled with. So it felt just really hard. And then I think the other thing that we've realized, um, after you came home in December and after you came home, uh, in October was coming home from the hospital. Isn't simple. No, because you're well enough to leave. I'm sure. Well, no, you're not well, and you were getting better, but you know, I don't think we realized until we came home from the hospital in December and, and though like mentally and emotionally that coming home was much harder than coming home in October, physically your lungs recovered a lot faster. Um, I think because of the tools that we learned and started implementing after the December hospital stay, your, your lungs got better really quickly to a degree where we said, oh, your lungs actually never got better from October until you went into the hospital in December. No. In the outside, in the cold, uh, in the traditional walk, I was very quickly shorter breath and panicky after the October hospitalization. Yeah. And you were tired and you were worn out. And you didn't have a lot of energy. Um, and then I don't think we saw a big burst of progression in the parts of your body where it had already been happening. That wasn't what happened in October, but that did happen in December. But in October, you know, it was just a continued, you know, the pace of loss for your shoulder. October, that was sensation to that's how your shoulder got worse. Your shoulder did get a lot uh, worse then. Mm-hmm. So when you got home in October, what had you lost physically? Because I wasn't thinking it had gotten a lot worse in October. Uh, instead of work, I felt there was less strength in the shoulder, trying the hand, and forearm. So I started at that juncture to augment when I lost by using my right hand and shoulder to push around the left side. And that must have been when we had that conversation with the kids about about your shoulder, because I don't think we had really talked to them about it until then. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah, I remember that conversation, because I remember getting in the car with Cohen after. Yeah. And then I think November was a blur of um, like adjusting to things. I think you needed me for more things then at that point than you had. Then we were getting ready for you to have the feeding tube. I think that the change was you getting dressed. Yeah, the change was in getting dressed. I told pants to close up, button to mm-hmm. felt. Until you do predators could get dressed easily. Right, and then we started to worry about uh how you would go to the bathroom at work. Because mm-hmm. you needed those are those rings. Yeah, I bought like keychain rings and put them on a zipper because you couldn't pinch your zipper, but you could like put loop your thumb in it and pull your zipper up that way. But 
you couldn't really un your you couldn't button your pants. No, because you didn't come on tracky trail to the cover chest. That's right. Because that's her shoe well. Yeah, we had to have like a little training session. See if Willa could get you fully dressed. She crushed it. Yeah, you were going to go to a game while we were gone, so you need to wear a suit, which is more complicated to get dressed in. Mm -hmm. And she did manage all of it. Yeah, Cohen and I went, just the two of us. Yeah. And then lost 10 pounds during the rest of the day. Yes. They learned those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people say to you, oh, you look thin, which is something that is always a struggle for you. Oh, you don't want to validate your fears. Right. And and the reason why you were starting to look thin to people is because you lost so much muscle in your shoulders. Mm-hmm. So your shoulders look like skeletal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that in your shirts, you know, and your, and your face did look, you'd like, look like you lost weight in your face. I'm sick. Yeah, you were sick. You were sick. And I think, you know, I recorded that little update at the very end of November. And then I felt like, okay, we're going to go into December and, you know, we're, I just going to have, I'm just going to spend time with every, with the kids and your sister was going to come with her kids for Christmas. And I was, I'm just going to focus on those things and all the good things that we still have, you know, because I knew that things were still happening with your shoulders and things were changing for us in a, in a pretty significant way. You know, this disease it it incrementally takes away these things and then you hit this tipping point, right? Where like all of a sudden you were okay, you could manage and then poof, it's gone. And it feels like you had this big burst, but in reality it was just, it was gradual. And then that one gradual step was the time you lost the ability to mm-hmm. do something. And when it's come to your arms and your hands, like losing the ability to to do those things is is hugely significant you know your legs are remain incredibly strong you know you said to me what did you say to me yesterday you were looking down at your legs and you said i said a really strange combination of evil bodied and quite disabled yeah a really strange combination of able bodied and quite disabled if you look down in the shower horses, they're so strong they are. Okay. Yeah. Try to do something? I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to just pick up an ice cube mm-hmm. on the floor. Can't. Yeah, pick up an ice cube. I'm going to pour in a cup and spill it. On and on and on. It's like the other day they said, can you drop the puck and cones game? Yeah, can you drop the pocket cones game? I suggest a very good dropping. <laughs> Excellent. It's your best skill. <laughs> but yeah, so that was kind of where things were uh, after you got out of the hospital in October. And, and we really just sort of limped through November, uh, thinking that we were slowly getting better. Just kind of, let's say, naive. Naive. I'm fine. What's going on? And you were still drinking. You were still drinking things, and all of your 4,000 calories were still going into your stomach. That's the craziest part. Because since he got his, so he did end up on December 2nd, he got the, the it's called a GJ tube. So, and, and he's been eating into his intestine only since then. And the notion that we were putting anything 
in his stomach is shocking to us. Like for four weeks, for five weeks, the train reeking quit. I am 12,000 calories a day. Into your stomach. Serious looks. Yeah. Got the GJ and said, then, you don't put a drop of water into his stomach. Yeah. No. Nothing. No. No, that's true. I was remembering that in November, after you got out of the hospital, Willa and I went to pub night that one night. Do you remember that? Was it in November? I think that was, again, that sort of, I don't know if it was naive or what it was, but it was just that sort of realization that life was going to be really different from now on. There's this community little pub night at a community center by our house, and Willa wanted to go. Cohen didn't want to go that week. So you and Cohen stayed home, and I took Willa. And I think we walked. It was nice enough out still. When we went there, it was nice enough out. And I think you were going to come pick us up um, because it was going to be cold for the walk home. And I think Cohen texted me or called me from your phone and said that you had aspirated. And I don't know if that was reflux or if you had been drinking something that time. I'm trying to drink a chunk to my throat. You had stuff in your throat. Yeah. And I said, okay, can you come get us? And you said, no, I can't. <laughs> Willa and I charged through. It was so cold. And she had we didn't have the right clothes on because we for walking in the cold because we thought you were going to come and get us. And we trudged home and... And we had the cough assist then, and we did the cough assist. And I don't remember if you needed antibiotics that time or not. But it was just a very, like, overwhelming feeling since all this started, that our lives were taking a very different turn. And the disease, and I remember saying to you that we had to stop, like, trying to fit the disease into, you know, fitting the disease into our life. Like the, our lives had now, our lives were being forced to fit into the disease. That's all said. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had to take a few breaks during this because it's long and it's hard for you to get through it without needing a break and coughing. And it's just a lot of talking. And so we're going to stop here and we're going to come back and we'll talk about December, which was, you know, a whole different ball game. A lot more serious. A lot more serious. Very, very scary. Exactly. I don't think I appreciate it till after the fact. No. So serious it was. No, I remember when I had to say to you, Chris, you you were on life support. That means without those machines, you would not have lived. I still struggle to believe that. Yeah. Yes, it was very, very scary. So we'll get into that next time and, you know, and talk a little bit about, about mentally and emotionally where we are because this has been a, it's been a struggle for all of us. Um, but I am not new to talking about my <laughs> struggles in this realm and thinking about them. I think it's been a different it's been a bigger um, struggle for you than you've ever had before. I don't do so much the struggle to talk or not talk until you feel. So you felt things and it tells before. Right, that's what I mean. That the ICU created real trauma. Mm-hmm. Psychological trauma. Well, 
I'm grateful that you are still able to record these conversations with me because the other part of the ICU that we'll get into in the next episode is that there was a lot of conversation about whether you needed a tracheostomy and you can't talk with a tracheostomy. So the fact that you're still here and talking is nothing short of a miracle. Our uniquely defined miracles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thank you for keeping alive. <laughs> well, I think the doctors did that. <laughs> I think it's kind of much cutie, honestly. Well, we're all here to still be doing it, and that's the important thing. So, next time, see you in a week. I'll be here. I'll be here. Thank God. Okay. Love you. Life has changed so much for us in these last months, and it's changing still. We're trying to adjust, and some days we're better at it than others. But even on the hardest, most impossible feeling days, we are aware of the gift we've been given. The gift of Chris still being here. The gift of him sitting in the stands at the kids' hockey games and of cuddling on the couch for family movies and for mini sticks games in the basement, which are still so precious, even if dad can't make all the saves he used to. One day after Chris's October hospital stay, I was at the mall looking for something for the kids, and I sent Chris a text about it, asking for his opinion. It was something completely unimportant, not a big deal. And it struck me how many of those moments, those unimportant ones, the ones that don't feel like a big deal, but the ones that I still want his thoughts on, how many of those moments I stand to lose. And so even when I'm stretched so thin, I feel like I am about to come apart at the seams. I'm trying to remember that, that I still have those moments, that I still have Chris. If you still have your people by your side, do me a favor and give them a hug today if you can, or send them a text or call them to tell them how you feel. Don't wait, friends. Life is so beautifully, terrifyingly fragile. One more reminder that if you value this podcast and these conversations and you want to support my work, you can share Sorry I'm Sad on social media and you can subscribe wherever you stream your podcasts. If you'd like to show your support financially, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow to become a member. For the monthly cost of one latte, you can help keep this work going, help keep it ad-free, help it grow, and get access to the Sorry I'm Sad Patreon community. Sorry I'm Sad is created, produced, and engineered by me, Kelsey Snow, with theme music by my dear friend, Andrea Revel. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is never past Just re-